Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, we're living in a world, and particularly our society, our culture, um, or to be more specific, even in Victoria, where things are progressing, you would say. Most other states would look at our state and uh, maybe even the world would say uh, that our state is a very progressive state. And in layman's language, in some sense, they think that's all about progressive, yes, but you know, forward thinking as though you know, mankind is progressing forward. And yet things couldn't be further from the truth because really our, our state is moving further and further away from God. It is becoming more and more godless. And even as things are being implemented in so many different ways, there even seems to be a sense of opposition coming our way, particularly for Christians, in, in what we can speak and how we are to live our lives even as a church. Now when we see this around us, I wonder if sometimes we are tempted to be overwhelmed by this, thinking, you know, how can we persevere then when, when our society is becoming so godless? How can we persevere as a church and as Christians uh, in this godless society, even as uh, opposition and all kinds of other things are coming our way? You know, per- perhaps there are some of you who are struggling with certain sin- sins, and as you see our culture around becoming more liberal in their thinking and allowing more and more sin to come into this culture of ours, you might be thinking, how is it that I can still stand firm and be a witness to the Lord and live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? Well, I pray that this text that we're going to be looking at in Genesis 6 verses 9 through 13 would encourage you, because it's a text about a man named Noah Uh, and how God's work in Noah will cause him to persevere in the perverse world that he lived in at the time. And, And we have much to learn here as we see how Noah stands firm in that perverse world, and we have much to see in terms of how we are to live our lives and even in the way that God works in Noah's life. And then even beyond that, we, uh, we can even see how uh, God then continues to work and his attitude towards a world that continues to move away from him. This passage, verses 9 through 13, really it serves as a contrast. And by way of outline, I've got two headings. You have... Uh, a righteous man, that's in verses 9 and 10, that, that'll be the first heading that we'll be looking at. And then the second heading that we'll be looking at will be a ruined world, that's in verses 11 through 13. So let's look first of all at a righteous man in verses 9 and 10. And I, I trust that this passage would be an encouragement to you. Verse 9 reads, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. These are the generations of Noah. Now, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, first, we looked at, uh, you could call it the introduction of the book of Genesis. That was from... Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, where we saw God's creation and how God created this world in six days and then he rested on the seventh day and how it was a very good world. Then in Genesis 2 4, we are introduced to this term, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then from Chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4, we saw of then what became of this very good world that God had created. 
We saw there how the fall came about and how then even moving on to the next generation after Adam and Eve uh, with Cain and Abel and how the culture was developing and how wickedness was also increasing in the world. Then in chapter 5, Genesis 5, it begins with the term, these are the generations of Adam. Or, or really what became of Adam's generations, of the children of Adam, what became of mankind. And first we looked at how God preserved a godly line from Adam through Seth all the way to Noah and his sons. And it showed how God was keeping his promise of preserving a godly line, a line that would love the Lord and would hate Satan. And we saw how God was uh, keeping his promise this way. And ultimately, through that line, how he would bring the promised offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. And then uh, in Genesis 6, the first eight verses, we saw how then God preserves... Um, while God preserves a small remnant of this godly line, the rest of the generations of Adam, they had become utterly corrupt, that their wickedness was being um, lived out as they lived very long years. So much so that they started to build unholy unions even with demons to have a better life or maybe even a better version of themselves and maybe even to overcome death perhaps but that plan did not work and God promised of how because of how wicked man had become even by having these unions with demons God promised that he was going to wipe out all life now we come to this new section And here there's the mention of Noah. And it says, these are the generations of Noah. Or in other words, from this section onward, we're going to see now what became of Noah. And we see here in verse 9, there's a description of Noah's godly character. It says there that Noah was a righteous man. Now what does that mean? Noah was a righteous man. It certainly doesn't mean that he was a sinless man. It doesn't mean that somehow Noah out of his own ability was more righteous compared to the rest of the world. Somehow he had an extra measure of ability that he had of his own accord. No, Noah was just as sinful as anyone else in the world. He had the exact same heart. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, we we will see in Genesis 9 how Noah is still a sinful person even after the flood. So what is the the, the fact that Noah is a righteous man? How, How is he a righteous man? Well, I would say this. Noah's righteousness was an alien righteousness. It was the righteousness of another. It was, in every respect, not a righteousness of his own. It really was a righteousness that God gives to a person who puts their trust and hope and faith in God. If you just move forward a few chapters in Genesis, in Genesis 15, verse 6, it talks about Abraham, and it says this in Genesis 15, 6. And he, that is speaking of Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In fact, if you turn to the New Testament, in Hebrews eleven six, it says about Noah that through faith in God, Noah was counted as righteous. So really, this this righteousness of Noah, it's a righteousness that God gave to him as he put his faith in God. And and, and fundamentally, this, this righteousness, it has to do with right standing with God. 
You see, Noah believed in God and trusted in God's word that he would send that promised offspring from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. He put his faith in that, trusted God in that, and therefore he was in right standing before God. He, he had the righteousness uh, imparted to him from God. And this is the same for every believer of every age. See, for the Old Testament saint, they look forward, they looked forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus and what he would do. And that was counted to them as righteous. For us in the New Testament period, we look backward to Jesus and what he has already done, and that is counted to us as righteous. That is the only way anyone can be righteous. You know, Romans 3.10 says, there is none who is righteous in God's eyes. Absolutely no one, as far as God is concerned. The only way, way a person is made righteous before God is when one puts their trust in Jesus and what he has done on the cross of Calvary to save sinners. No one can make themselves righteous. God alone is the only one who can make a person righteous and justified in his sight through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Noah was in right standing before God. He possessed a righteousness. He was righteous before God. And this righteousness then was also expressed in the way that Noah lived his life in that Noah lived according to God's word and according to God's standard. If you look at Ezekiel 14, 14, Ezekiel uh, you know, recognizes Noah and he says, counts Noah as a righteous man. And then the same Ezekiel, if you turn to Ezekiel 18, 5, he defines a righteous man as one who is just and right practically speaking, in his living. In other words, even in, in his dealings with his people, this person is a just and right person. And so that's what Noah was. He, he had this righteousness reckoned to him or given to him by God, and then that was lived out in, in, in how he dealt with others. And more specifically, uh, you know, this is more elaborated in the next way in which Noah is, Noah's characteristic is defined. So Noah was righteous, then it also says Noah was blameless. You know, some translations uh, translate this word blameless as perfect. It's the same word that's used of the unblemished spotless sacrifice, that idea of uh, bringing a physically perfect and uh, a, a fit animal for sacrifice, as we see in, say, Leviticus 5.18. So what does this mean, that, that Noah was blameless? Again, this is not saying that Noah was, you know, had some kind of sinless perfection about him. In fact, if you turn to 2 Samuel twenty two twenty four, David, King David, who murdered and committed adultery, this is what he says before God. He says, I was blameless before God. David, who committed murder and committed adultery, says, I was blameless before God. So, so, so what does it mean then to, to be blameless before God? As, as, as one commentator says, it, it means to have no noticeable blot on one's character. It's literally the, the idea of being whole or complete in the sense of having integrity. You know, we get the word uh, integer, you know, that mathematical term integer, 
where it's used of a whole number as opposed to a, a, a fraction. So this is a person who has wholeness of heart and character in that he lives out what he actually believes. In other words, see, Noah, he was not a deceitful person. He wasn't pretentious. He wasn't a hypocrite. The way he lived his life was congruent to what he believed in. There was no noticeable blot in his character. He was above reproach, you could say. You know, no one could point to Noah, look at his character and you know, say there is something blameworthy of Noah. Yes, he was not a perfect person. Yes, he would sin. But characteristically, there was no sin lifestyle in Noah. There was a singleness of heart to live out what he believed about God and his word. And so in this way, Noah was blameless before men in that godless culture that he lived in. So if, if being righteous has to do with his standing and how he lived his life before God, then being blameless has to do with the way he lived his life before men. And the reason that Noah was able to live a blameless life is precisely because he was righteous before God. See, the righteousness that Noah possessed is seen in the way that he lived a blameless life. Or in other words, his blameless life exemplified that righteousness of God. In fact, so upright and just was Noah in his living. 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was also a preacher of righteousness in that he called people to turn away from their sin and to turn to God, and that if they rejected God and continued in their sinful ways, and God's judgment was coming their way. And he would have also explained how to get right with God. So Noah was righteous and preached about the righteousness of God and li even lived out his righteousness in such a way that he was blameless in the society that he lived. The text specifically says Noah was blameless in his generation, meaning in the time period that he lived. Well, up to the flood, that was 600 years Noah had lived, up to the time of the flood. He was a righteous and blameless man, a man who lived according to God's way. He was nothing like the people around him. In contrast to the rest of the dark world around him, Noah just stood out as a beacon of righteousness. So Noah was righteous he was blameless. Third, the text also tells us that Noah walked with God. Now, we've already seen this terminology before. In Genesis 3, we saw God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. And then in Genesis 5, we saw how Enoch, uh, Noah's great-grandfather, walked with God. And all of that we saw how it points to an intimate relationship with the Lord. So Noah also enjoyed an intimate relationship with the Lord. So, so here's the thing, and I think of the progression. So righteous, blameless, walking closely with the Lord. And, and, and here's the thing, as you think about that progression. A person who is righteous and then lives out that righteousness of God with integrity, e even though it won't be perfect, that is the person who will enjoy a close communion with the Lord, a close relationship with the Lord. And at the same time, it is also that 
person who has an intimate relationship with the Lord who can then live out the righteousness of God and be beyond reproach in the society they live in. So one reinforces the other. Righteousness lived out in integrity leads to close relationship with the Lord and close relationship with the Lord will in turn help to live out that righteousness of God in a blameless way, in, uh, to live in, in an above reproach way. Noah was righteous and blameless and walked with God. Now what's interesting is that in the original language, it's actually with God, Noah walked. That, that, that term, with God, it's emphatically placed at the front of the sentence to essentially highlight Noah's dependence and reliance on the Lord. You see, Noah walked out of step with the world, but he walked in step with the Lord. And it is precisely because it is with the Lord that he walked so closely, relying on him, depending on him every step of the way, that Noah then was able to live out that righteous life with integrity, even though the world around him was so wicked. Now verse 10 says, And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This righteous, blameless Noah who had a close uh, relationship with the Lord, he had three sons. Now there's no description given about uh, his sons here, but in the coming chapters of Genesis, we will see that these three sons of Noah it is from these three sons of Noah that the rest of all the peoples in the world will come about. In fact, all of us, you and me and everybody in this world have come from one of these three sons of Noah. And really, even as we see Noah as such a godly person coming from that godly line, with the mention of these three sons, it sort of remains now open-ended as to which of these three sons now will carry on that godly line and ultimately through whom will come that promised offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. So Noah was a righteous man who lived out that righteousness in integrity walking closely with the Lord. Now I want you to think for a minute for the kind of, kind of world that Noah was living in. You see, except for Noah and his father Lamech who, who dies five years before the flood and his grandfather Methuselah who dies just before the flood, Noah is essentially all by himself. It was a perverted world. And yet, he was a righteous man who lived beyond reproach and walked closely with the Lord. He was still able to maintain that close relationship with the Lord. What, what about us as believers? In this day and age, how can we maintain a close relationship with the Lord? Well, we've talked about this quite a few times in the last couple of years, but I want to remind you this again. The, the three main means that God has given us, especially in this age that we live in, that is the word, prayer, and fellowship. These are the three main ways by which God, God has given us these three main means by which we can maintain a close relationship with the Lord. And if one of these three main means, we remove any one of them, then our relationship with the Lord is affected. Think about it. 
If you spend time in prayer and in fellowship with the believers, but you don't spend time in the Word of God, then you will be ignorant about God and about His ways and His character. No matter how sincere you may be about God, you will be very ignorant about God and His ways. And that will impact your relationship with the Lord. Now, if you spend time in the Word and in fellowship, but not in prayer, then you will not learn to be thankful and give praise to God regularly. And furthermore, you will not be, learn to be reliant on the Lord for your needs. You will just be reliant on yourself. And that in itself will impact your relationship with the Lord. And if you spend time in the Word and in prayer, but you don't fellowship first and foremost with your church family, you don't spend time talking and, and interacting and sharing your life and opening your heart with the brothers and sisters first and foremost with your church family, then I would say you're not actually living out the Christian life. See, because all the one anothering verses in the Bible, your, your responsibility toward one another, as well as your accountability toward your fellow believers, starting within your immediate church family, you're not living that out. You're simply being a hearer of the word and not being a doer of the word. And then on top of that, if there are sin issues in your life, there's no one to hold you accountable. There's no one to help you in your walk. No one to encourage you and to point you in the right direction. And so that too will impact your relationship with the Lord. So these three uh, God-ordained means, the word, prayer, and fellowship, these are the ways in which in this day and age we can maintain our walk with the Lord even while we sin, even while we live in a sin-cursed world. But Noah didn't have all of these means. He certainly didn't have the Bible. I mean, he didn't even have the Old Testament. He didn't have even bits and pieces of it. And there were hardly any believers around in the world at that time. And yet Noah was righteous and walked closely with the Lord. Why? Uh, how? How, how? How did Noah do it? How is it that Noah is able to maintain a close relationship with the Lord and, and, and live so closely with the Lord in such a corrupt world? Answer, because of God's grace. Because of God's unmerited favor that is bestowed on him. A few weeks ago, we saw in verse 8, in Genesis 6, 8, how Noah found favor or, or grace in the sight of God. That even though the world was so corrupt, God decided to show grace to Noah. Noah's heart was no different from the, from the rest of the world. Even his heart was the same. Every thought, every intention of his heart was continually evil. It was just as sinful as the rest of the world. But God decided to show his grace to Noah. Now this is very critical for us to understand. This connection between the grace of God shown to Noah and the description of Noah in verse 9. See, because sometimes we can wrongly read through this section and think, oh, God was gracious to Noah because... Oh, because Noah was righteous and, and blameless and walked with God. But that is not what the text says. Remember verse 8 ended in the section of what became of the generations of Adam. And it ended with God specifically showing Noah grace to this one man. And so as we're starting here in verse 9, this new section, the generations of Noah 
This is an explanation of what became of the man who was shown grace by God. See, as a result of God's grace toward Noah, Noah was a righteous man and a blameless man and walked with God. God chose to set his special grace on Noah, and that is why Noah lived a life very different to everyone around him. It wasn't that there was something special about Noah that God decided to show his grace. No, it was purely God's sovereign choice. Now let me ask you, if you are a Christian, why is it that God saved you? Why is it that God saved me? Well, purely because it was God's grace and his prerogative. His sovereign choice. You know, I, I want us to look at a few passages because I want us to be very clear on this and how it relates to us, both in God saving us and how we live our lives. Turn to Romans chapter 9. And there it talks about how God chose to show his sovereign grace to Jacob and not Esau. And then it says in verses 14 through to 16 of Romans 9, this is what it says. After God said he, he shows his uh, grace particularly to Jacob and not Esau, then verses 14 to 16 says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And notice what, it, what God says after that. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So you see, it's not the sheer force of human will, some you know, strong exertion from any individual that any person gets saved or somehow therefore can receive the grace of God. No, this is purely an undeserved gift and favor that God gives to, a, gives to a sinner. It can't be just, you know, plucked out from God's hand. No individual can merit it. It is purely God's favor toward the sinner. In fact, even in the passage, <clears throat> excuse me, even in the passage that we read this morning from 1 Timothy, you know, Paul in that passage, he talks about how sinful he was and how that sinful life was lived in ignorance and in unbelief. But then he says, but God was merciful to me. And then in verse 14 of 1 Timothy, this is what he says, that God's grace then overflowed in his life. Essentially saying that's how God saved him because of God's abundant grace that overflowed into his life because previously he lived in unbelief and in his sin. But God showed mercy and his abundant grace flowed into his life and he was saved this way. And then it says, with that abounding grace came faith and love. With that abounding grace came faith in God and a love for God and others. So a, a person has faith and love for God only because of God's grace in that person's life. It is God's grace alone that gives a person faith to believe in Jesus and have a love for God and for others. Otherwise, a person will not believe and a person will not love. You see the same idea in 1 John 5. 1 John 5, 1 says that only a person born of God who has been met by God's saving grace, 
Only that kind of person believes in God and has a love for God and others. Same thing here, faith and love. If I were to put this verse in the negative, it's essentially saying if a person is not born of God, he does not believe and he does not love God and others. You see, nothing about our salvation is from our own will and exertion. Salvation is all of God's powerful grace acting in the life and heart of a sinner, including the faith that we exercise and the love that we have for God and others. And it is that same grace then that also transforms us bit by bit as we live in this world. Look at Titus 2, 11 11 through 13. It reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, what is training us? The grace of God training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age and waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's the same grace that saves us that then transforms us also bit by bit as, as we live in this world. Now somebody might ask, okay, so if it's all of grace, you know, this this righteousness that God gives and we're living that out, but even that is a work of God's grace, then, you know, are you saying that we have no responsibility then to live out this Christian life? I mean, God is doing all the work, right? It is all of his grace, right? So uh, are you saying we don't have any responsibility? No. I'm not saying that. There is also a human responsibility as we live out our life. Turn to Philippians 2, 12 to 15. This is what it says here in Philippians 2, 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that's human responsibility. Every believer's responsibility is to work out your salvation. And now verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in other words, what this verse is saying is this, 12 and 13 of Philippians 2, that every believer has a responsibility to live out their Christian life, to to live out that salvation that they now possess. But when the Christian puts in the effort to to live out this life, they must realize that behind it all is God who is at work. It is God who is both giving you the the, the willing, the the, the will to do it, as well as the ability to live this life, to, to live in a way that is pleasing to God. That is God's working in you as you work out. The evidence that God is working in you is that every Christian then works out this Christian life for everyone to see. But ultimately, it is God that is working in you. That is why you're working it out. And then verses 14 and 15, again, it comes back to human responsibility. But again, keep in mind that God is working in And in fact, some of the words that are used here, it's almost descriptive of what what is mentioned of Noah as well. Verses 14 and 15, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here's my point. As a result of God's grace, he saves us, those of us who are believers. 
And that same grace continues to work in us, transforming us, enabling us to live that life out. But at the same time, it's not just automatic where we are passive in the process. No, as believers, we have a responsibility to live it out. We put in the effort, we live it out, but that is evidence that God is working in our lives. So as believers, any change that we see in our lives, any righteousness that we are living out, that we see in our lives, while we put in the effort, it is ultimately God working in us by his powerful grace. Whatever good, whatever righteousness comes out of us, and even if it blesses us, we should never think, oh, that was me, you know, as a way of somehow being prideful or as a way of boasting somehow. No, it is God's doing. You know, sometimes we might be tempted to think when we have a positive impact, maybe with our friends, in our school, or in our workplace, or in our neighborhood, you know, we, we might think, oh, it, it's all my effort, my righteousness, my good works. You know, that, that's why it's having an impact. Or perhaps we might think, you know, uh, maybe in our marriages as we see it thriving or as it's going well, or maybe in our parenting perhaps where things might be going well, or in our relationships with one another where, you know, things are going well, or whatever it may be, where we think that, oh, it's, it's because of my efforts, my righteousness, my good works, that's why all this is happening. No. At the end of the day, we need to realize whatever righteousness we have, whatever good works we have, while we do put in the effort, it is ultimately God's work. It is God's grace working in and through our lives as believers. So that is what is going on in Noah's life. God's grace is shown to Noah, and that same grace is trans has transformed Noah's life. And it is precisely because of God's grace that was at work in Noah's life that he is then able to be named as righteous, and as blameless in his generation, and as walking closely with the Lord. Let me just put it this way. See, God didn't have to give us these details about Noah. You know, he could have just ended at God showed grace to Noah, and the flood came, and all that kind of stuff just happened. You know, forget even this verse 9, this detail about Noah. But in giving us these descriptions of Noah, God is helping us to understand what a trophy of grace, what a trophy of God's grace Noah is, despite the world that he lived in. Because that's God's work in that individual man's life. That's why he is a righteous man. That's why he's a blameless man. That's why he's walking closely with the Lord. Because of God's grace working in his life. So that's Noah as the one righteous man. Now let's just look at our second heading that is a ruined world. A ruined world, and that's in verses 11 through 13. And really, you know, verses 11 through 13, it almost serves as an echo of what has been said about the sinfulness of man in the first few verses of uh, Genesis 6. Let me just read 11 and 12 first. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. A complete contrast to the kind of life Noah lived. Noah was righteous and blameless, whereas the rest of the world living in corruption and in violence. Now this word corrupt, it appears three times. I don't know if you noticed it in these two verses. In verse 11 it says, the earth was corrupt. Verse 12 it says, the earth, it it was corrupt. Then again, all flesh has corrupted their way. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. It's really emphasizing the the state of the world uh, during Noah's time. And this, world, and this word corrupt, it's a, it's a word that means to spoil, to, to ruin, to, to de- de- devastate, to destroy. The, this word is used in Jeremiah 2.30 to, to describe the, uh, a ravenous, uh, ravenous lion. Why? Because a, a ravenous lion is one who destroys and decimates its prey. In Jeremiah 18.4, this same word is used to describe how a vessel made of clay in the potter's hand was spoiled. It's the same word there. To destroy, to, to ruin, to spoil, to, to devastate. And so that same word is now being used to describe how the entire human race was living in their sin with the exception of Noah. They were ruining themselves in sin and, and including everything around them. And this corruption or ruining is further described as violence. And that word there, it's the idea of lawlessness. And it can describe, you know, what comes out of that lawlessness in, you know, many different ways. From anything from unjust treatment of others, bearing false witness, to assault, murder, and even rape. So that same word violence in other parts of the Old Testament is used this way. Unjust treatment, bearing false witness of assaulting, of murdering, and even rape. And then God specifically says in verse 12 that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Meaning that the the sin, the, the ruin, the lawlessness was not just a once-in-a-while occurrence. No, it, it was their whole way of life. Their whole lifestyle was corrupt and lawless and ruinous. And it wasn't just a few people. It was all flesh. I mean, can you imagine the entirety of the human population living at this time with the exception of Noah and his family? See, when man rebels against God and goes away from God and his word, what happens invariably is it leads to the ruin of man and the ruin of those around him. Even the examples that we've seen so far to attest to that. Cain, he rejected God and his ways and it led to the murder of his brother. The godless Lamech from Cain's line, when he lived in a sin away from God's good rule, he used women as objects to satisfy his lust and even celebrated in his violence and killing others. Now all of humanity has rejected God and is living in sin, forming unholy unions with demons. And each one is motivated by greed and and lust and hatred, where everyone's just using each other for their own benefit, not for the glory of God. And it's leading to their ruin and the ruin of those around them, 
whether in the form of injustice, in the form of murder, in the form of assault, in the form of rape, in the form of debauchery, and every other kind of lawlessness. And this is always true of man, and and even for society at large, that the more a society rejects God and becomes godless, thinking that they are somehow progressing and becoming better, it's actually digressing. It's actually going towards its ruin. You say, why? Because whatever is not for the glory of God is also not for the good of man. And the more man rejects God and lives for his own glory, the more it will lead to man's ruin. And not just his own ruin, he will begin to treat others in such a way that it will lead to their ruin as well. And so society at large will be ruined. Now verse 13 says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God sees all this, and now he turns to Noah and tells him exactly what he thinks about the world, and he tells Noah that he is now determined to destroy all flesh along with the earth. Now the interesting thing is this, that the word used here for destroy where God says, I will destroy them with the earth, that word for destroy is the same word that is used for, for cor- corrupt or corruption or ruin in verses 11 and 12. See, God is going to ruin or destroy what is already self-ruining and self-destroying itself. See, God didn't, you know, create man so he could ruin himself and everything around him. No, God created man so he could live under the goodness of God's word and rule for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. But mankind, by rejecting God and his word and living in his sin, is willfully ruining himself as he's going away like this in his sin. And it's almost as if God is saying, mankind, you want to ruin yourself and everything around you? Well, I will give you ruin now because you will really understand what ruin is. Because I will ruin you now. And in this way, God determines to bring judgment of a, glo- of a global uh, scale. Man says he wants ruin. God says, I will give it to you. You know, one of the scariest things that can happen to anyone who continues to willfully live for themselves in their sin and just reject God and his good rule One of the scariest things that can happen to a person like that, who just continues to do that, is then for God to then look at that person and say, if that's how you want to live your life, you can have that life. And then God removes his restraining grace from that person's life. And that person goes deeper and deeper into sin, deceiving themselves and everyone around them. Often in the Bible, this idea is conveyed with the phrase, and God gave them over to their sin. Listen to the words in Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. God says this, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So what does God do? 
Verse 12, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. And you, you see this repeated again many times, particularly in Romans 1. God gave them over because this is what they wanted. They continued to reject God, continued to suppress the truth about God, and they lived this way, and then finally God gives them over. And then in other places of Scripture, you also hear of God hardening someone's heart. And again, it's the same idea of God giving someone over to their sin. It's the idea of God removing that restraining grace of His and allowing that person to to live in their sin and to harden their heart. It's the same concept. I wonder if there's anyone listening today who has not put their trust in Jesus and is living for themselves and still in their sin. Let me tell you, friend, the more you reject Christ and his good rule in your life, the more you are hardening your heart. You're in dangerous ground because you don't want God to come to you and say, you want to live for your ruin? You can have that life and where God removes that grace from your life and where then you're completely into your sinful lifestyle. But let me also tell you, friend, there is hope for you. Oh, there is wonderful hope for you. See, the fact that Noah, a man who also had a heart that was wicked, every intention of his of the thoughts of his heart were continually evil. Even a man like that, the fact that Noah was able to walk with God and experience something of that intimate relationship that Adam and Eve had, in, had with God in the garden before they sinned means that it is possible for a sinner living in this sin-cursed world to have an intimate relationship with God and to live in a way that pleases God. It is possible, and Noah is proof of that. Noah experienced the grace of God, and that same grace is revealed to us now in a much greater way, in much greater detail in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down to this sin-cursed world 2,000 years ago in the form of a man. He lived a perfectly righteous life that you and I should have lived. And he died the death that you and I should have died as the judgment of God fell on Jesus for the sin of all those who will believe. But then Jesus rose up on the third day, conquering sin and death providing a way for sinners to be saved by grace. Friend, let me tell you, you can't will yourself to receive this grace from God. No, it it is a gift. You cannot earn it. You can't grab it from God's hands. But if you recognize your sinfulness before God, and that what you deserve is nothing but God's judgment, and He is right to do so, because you are wicked to the core. If you recognize that, then cry out to God for mercy, even though you realize you don't deserve it. All you deserve is the judgment of God. Cry out to God for mercy. And if then you do indeed believe in the Lord Jesus and what he has done on the cross, then I would say to you, turn from your sin and living for yourself and turn to Jesus and keep turning to him for the rest of your life and trust in Jesus and his finished work. For this is the evidence that you truly believe and it is the evidence that God's grace has come and invaded your life 
and is continuing to work in your life. This is the evidence of it as you continually, from this day forward, continue to live, turning to Jesus and turning away from your sin. If you want to know more about Jesus and what it means to follow him, we would love to talk to you more. You can email us at connect at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, as I come to a close, I want you to consider Noah once again. See, Noah lived in a world that was more wicked than ours. Why do I say that? Because during the time that Noah lived, with the exception of Noah and his family, everyone, every single human being is living in rampant sin. We don't have that in our world today. Yes, there's rampant sin, and Christians or believers are still a minority, but it's certainly not just one man and his family who are believers right now in this world. And so you can imagine, it wouldn't have been easy for Noah. You know, there's, there's no other believers around, and he's, he's being righteous, living out that righteous life, being blameless, walking closely with the Lord, preaching the righteousness of God, while the entire world, literally the entire world, is wicked and hates God. You know, people would have looked at Noah and ridiculed him and, and mocked him. Probably told him he was crazy. How alone he would have felt. And even the fact that it says that they were lawless and violent and all that kind of stuff. It would have been dangerous for Noah too. You know, maybe people even wanted to try and kill him. Because they wouldn't want to hear what Noah was saying or the kind of life he was living. And then on top of that, even as he preaches, not a single person, 120 years as he built the ark and preached righteousness, not one person turns to the Lord. Talk about encouragement. And yet, what is it that kept Noah as a righteous and blameless man in that wicked world? What is it that made him live so closely with the Lord? The grace of God. It is the grace of God that protected Noah in that wicked world when he was preaching of God's coming judgment. It is the grace of God that transformed Noah's life and kept him blameless in that generation. It is the grace of God that saved Noah from God's judgment. And for those of us who are believers living in this perverse world, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that same grace God shows to us as well, even now. When we see the big tide of unrighteousness coming up, opposition rising against our Christian walk, you know, we can be rest assured that we are anchored in the grace of God. And it is this grace of God that will keep us in this sin-cursed world. And most specifically, we know that God's grace has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We are actually anchored to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So, so we don't need to fear. No matter what the society around us is becoming, we don't have to worry if we will still persevere to the end. Yes, we have a responsibility to, to cling on to Christ, to have an intimate relationship with Him and live out that righteous life. In fact, we are commanded to do so, to live blamelessly and, and shine forth Jesus. But ultimately, we can be rest assured 
that it is Jesus himself who's, who's clinging to us and who is working in and through us. And so like Noah, we too as believers, we will be able to stand as righteous and as blameless and we will be able to walk intimately with the, with the Lord by God's grace even though the world around us is becoming so wicked. That's how gracious our God is. That's how wonderful our God is. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace, your undeserved, unmerited favor given to sinners who deserve nothing but your judgment. And yet, Father, we thank you for the fact that you actually have shown grace to us. It was nothing of us. It was all of your doing. And we are so thankful for that, Father. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for his death on our behalf. And Father, we thank you that not only that something was done in the past, but you are continuing to work in our life because this grace continues to transform us even as we are tethered to Christ. And we thank you so much for that. And so, Father, even as we know that we are tethered to Christ and as we know that Jesus is holding us, help us then with confidence in you and in Jesus Christ live out our Christian life unashamed and help us by your grace to live that blameless life pointing to Jesus in the way we live our life and calling others to repentance and faith in Jesus and we pray that you would use us this way to be trophies of your grace just like you used Noah and we pray that as a result you would draw more people to yourself we thank you we give you all the praise and the glory, and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.